0: For those of you who don't know what the Brahma Vaharas are, the term Brahma Vahara means is often translated as sublime, sublime uh, states or divine abodes. Brahma refers to the godlike nature uh, and Vihara's home, so it's a it's a home of the gods, the the Brahma Vaharas. The Brahma Vaharas are four different. Um, facets of the awakened heart and they include love or metta metta, love, Uh, karuna is um, compassion, mudita is joy or sympathetic joy or appreciative joy and um, upekka is equanimity and when the heart is free, these are four very natural expressions of the heart. Uh, love really being the fundamental expression or the basis of the Brahma Viharas, And then the others, the compassion or the joy, the equanimity, are considered um, um, variations on love. So really, it's, it's, it's actually all about love. Uh, the brahma Viharas, And um, the love is, is the basis in terms of it. Or, uh, let me also say that a metta is um, as well translated at, sometimes as love or also as friendliness. That's why I was encouraging a, just a general friendliness towards whatever was happening in your meditation to start to see the metta it would have been different probably if I would have said, oh, you should love whatever is happening in your meditation. That would probably draw a different kind of response and is usually harder for people, given our ideas about love or the conventional way love is thought about. But if we start to understand metta as friendliness, well, we, I think we all start to see the benefit of having a friendly attitude towards what's present and that being the basis for responding to it skillfully. Um, The way the heart works when it's freed is that there's a basis of friendliness, a basis of openness and of care, and that um, goodwill morphs or changes in the face of suffering to compassion. That, that the heart is the sensitivity that we conventionally talk about when in relation to the heart is also there with meta, um, with with the Brahma Viharas. That it's it's there's a sensitivity, and that sensitivity allows the heart to express itself differently in different moments. And so, when there's suffering, in the face of suffering, the heart will actually shapeshift a bit and will be compassion. It's not just friendly. It's, 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 it's kind then, when the heart is open, sensitive, tender, responsive. Um, when there's goodness, when there's success or well-being, the heart responds with joy. It appreciates the goodness or the beauty or the happiness of self or others. And then the fourth Brahmavihara, which is probably the most unconventional, um, is equanimity, which is considered the wisdom quality of the heart, that the heart itself is wise, that there's a balance of heart. And I think of this as as grandmother heart or grandfather heart. And that's sometimes that term grandmother heart Um, is, is used in Zen. I'm not using it that way. I'm using it in my own way, which is the heart that sees clearly and understands the big picture of things. And so, even with the ups and downs, even with the trials and tribulations, and the successes and failures, and what's difficult and what's beautiful in life, it also knows that everything's okay in a certain way, that there's a certain wisdom or depth or big view of things so that the heart is also at rest. Now, the Brahma-viharas are characterized um, by their uh, limitless or measureless nature. In other words, the love of the Brahma-Viharas is not a limited love. The compassion is not a limited or bounded compassion. The joy is not simply because of one good thing or another good thing. It's because of all the good things. And the, and the uh, breadth of it is unlimited, limitless, illimitable. They say, and that's a very different way than we generally think about our own uh, emotions. So I'd like to, you know, when I was thinking about this today, I thought about our emotions, and because they're closely parallel to some of the Brahma viharas like love or kindness or, or joy. And. Um, and so I looked up emotion in the dictionary, which I can't, kind of can't believe I've never looked up the word. To really see, well, you know, because we, uh, how many people feel like their emotions are important to them? Let me just see, <laughs> right? So it's, they're really important to us. And as a society and as a culture, it may, they may be more important than any time in history. Isn't that an interesting thought to consider that our emotions are more important? Than any time in human history, and that's a whole other topic we could explore. We won't go there, but but I looked up what emotions. What it said in the dictionary, and it said a natural, instinctive state of mind, deriving from one's circumstances, mood, relationships with others. You know, we have certain emotions in relationship, but they said an instinctive state of mind. And then it went on to say any of the particular feelings that characterize such a state of mind, such as joy, anger, love, hate, horror, fear, etc. Then the dictionary went on to say instinctive or intuitive feeling as distinguished from reasoning or knowledge. And we all understand. I think we all get that part of emotions. They're not exactly logical. In, the, in that rational sense and often are in conflict with our rationality or our supposed rationality. And the, the word comes from the French imouvoir, uh, having to do with um, mental agitation or a kind of outflow And they really, then in the dictionary I looked at, they kind of divided up uh, the whole realm that is often uh, blanketed by the word emotion. So they talked about feelings. Feelings can be any subjective reaction or state, pleasant or unpleasant. Okay. Um, An emotion. Now they're they're differentiating an emotion as a very intense feeling which often involves a physical as well as a mental response and implies outward expression or agitation and I like that, that it includes the physicality of an emotion. Then they then they define passion, suggests a powerful or overwhelming emotion often with connotations of sexual love or intense anger and then they go on to say that um, there is more intellect and less feeling in sentiment, which is a certain kind of emotionality. Um, and that is often applied to an emotion inspired by an idea like political sentiments or anti-war sentiments. Right? There's a certain emotionality that's inspired by an idea rather than a certain kind of emotion in relationships. And then they have affect, um, which is a formal psychological term that refers to an observed emotional state, like one's overall affect. Um, And so I don't, uh, you know, I'm not actually doing a total study of emotion, but what was interesting to me is where where these definitions of emotion lined up with the Brahma-Viharas and where they didn't because the Brahma-viharas have, we could think of the Brahma-viharas as Buddhist emotions, as the Buddhist understanding of emotion. And, and in this way, that they're the Buddhist understanding of healthy emotions or helpful emotions. That some emotions are not so helpful, um, mostly things like unmetabolized, Anger, unmetabolized aggression, or unmetabolized grief um, are not so helpful. In other words, when I say unmetabolized, I see, you know, emotions that we're not able to sit with, be with, allow, let them move through us and have their transformative effect. And that certain emotions from a Buddhist perspective, are considered very healthy, very mature. Love is considered a mature emotion, love and friendliness. Compassion is considered a mature emotion. Um, Joy is considered a very mature emotion. Also, in the dictionary, when it said the emotions were states of mind, that's a lot how it's understood in Buddhism. But it's understood maybe for a different reason. I'm I'm not actually sure about this. Remember in Buddhism, the heart and the mind, it's the same word for heart and mind, citta. Citta is the, I think both Pali and Sanskrit. I know it's the Pali, citta. And there wasn't the same division that we have between heart and mind. And actually, originally in the Greek, there wasn't the same division either. The heart was always found in the chest. Excuse me, the mind was always found in the chest. It only rose up and separated out as we've supposedly evolved um, uh, and progressed in terms of our individuation. Also, the way the dictionary talked about feeling. Remember, it talked about the pleasant or unpleasant quality of feeling. And in the second foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of feeling. But it doesn't mean feeling in terms of emotion here, really. It means feeling in terms of the pleasant or unpleasant or neutral quality that might be alive in any moment, in every moment, actually. So I thought a good example would be Barry Bonds hit a home run yesterday. And some of you may have been watching that and felt a really pleasant emotion. You know, you like Barry Bonds, you think he's a good guy, and you're happy that he tied the record with Hank Aaron. Now, at that same instant, some other people here were sitting and watching the game and they didn't. They felt unpleasant. They don't like Barry Bonds. They think he's, you know, not a good role model, as they say. And so they didn't like the fact that he hit the home run and tied the record. And and so there, it was an unpleasant feeling. Most of you here <laughs> 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 probably weren't watching. <laughs> Or you were only watching because you were with a friend who was watching and they wanted to watch, and you really didn't care whether he hit the home run or tied the record or he did steroids or he didn't do steroids or whatever it is. And so your response was neutral, a neutral feeling. Right? Somebody bet me earlier today, I have to confess, they said, Oh, can you get Barry Bonds into the Dharma talk? I said, I'll do it. (laughs) And I'll donate that money to the Buddhist bike ride. (laughs) But but it's a good example of Vedana because Vedana happens in each moment, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And it's related to a certain kind of feeling, but it's not exactly emotion in the way we conventionally think of emotion. Um, The other piece that that um, they said. They talked about the different emotions of joy or anger or love or hate. And, And like I said a few moments ago, Buddhism also understands all those as emotions and mostly makes the discrimination, first of all, is how do we relate to them? How do we relate to our emotions? That's maybe the most important thing, is to see that we're having an emotion and that it has a physical, um, can, uh, um, mental, and affective... It's a it's a total experience. It has a physical quality, a mental component to it, and the overall affect of anger, or of happiness, or joy, or sadness. And so, primar- from one side, we want to just see how do we relate to our emotions skillfully? And so then all the Brahma Baharas become actually very important here as a way to see how are we relating. Are we first of all being friendly towards our self? Are we being kind if we're suffering? Can we enjoy our good fortune of being happy? And do we have the equanimity to see the changing nature of those emotions, to not take them totally personally, to not um, dissociate from them? And this is a really interesting place of practice which I talk about as um, not identifying and not disidentifying. Or maybe both identifying and disidentifying. Better way to say it: identifying and disidentifying. Being fully present, fully embodied, fully experiencing, and yet also seeing the transience of the experience. Not letting it, not taking it as a solid experience, as something um, concretized or reified. And so. And then there's a second way we can think about it. First is how do we work with it and then also the benefits of different emotions or different experiences that some express a more um, helpful side to ourselves ultimately or that there is a maturity that can come or um, I want to be really careful here because I, I want to, I want to um, value the love and the compassion um, and the joy and the equanimity. But I actually don't want to denigrate the anger or the fear or the sadness because they're, because they're part of the path. Remember what I said last week, if it's in the way, it is the way and so we're not actually trying to get rid of the anger or fear or the uh, um, sorrow whatever it might be but learn how to practice with it and then see the transformative possibility of fear to let's say courage or to see the transformative possibility of sadness to compassion or the transformative uh, um, uh, possibility of aversion or dislike to love, to friendliness, and so they're actually quite connected. But there's also something uh, we can say about the Brahma Viharas, which is they may be more fundamental ultimately. That the love may be more fundamental than the unfriendliness. That the friendliness is more of a surface or more of a, a conditioned response, that, that as we're mindful, as we learn to practice, as we learn to be with ourselves and let things come and let things go, something more fundamental will keep showing itself, something that's not so conditioned. Remember the Buddha talked about awakening. One of the metaphors he used is for, for nirvana or nirvana is the unconditioned. And the unconditioned is not a sterile void. It's actually a rich, alive, beautiful uh, um, radiance. And that radiance it has the, the rays of love or the rays of compassion or the rays of joy. And the Buddha uh, said it this way when he talked about love. He said, He said, it is in this way that we must train ourselves by liberation of the self through love. By liberation of the self through love. We will develop love. We will practice it. We will make it both a way and a basis, take our stand upon it, store it up, and thoroughly set it going. And within this, you can hear something very different about how the Buddha's talking about love than how we conventionally think about love. We will develop it. What does that mean, we will develop love? We will practice it. What does that mean? We don't usually think about developing romantic love or practicing romantic love. We, we usually think about getting it. We want to get... Or we are falling into it, right? We fall in love. We're not sure how it happens. It's like walking down the street and you just fall in a hole. You know, you didn't, you didn't even see it coming. Is part of, you know. And we kind of like that. Let's be honest. We like the, the kind of uh, altered state of it. But it's it's a little different than the understanding of love as meta or love as friendliness, or love as goodwill, or love as benevolence, which are all ways to talk about metta. Romantic love, generally, is very limited. It's like to one person, or you know two people maybe you fall in love with at the same time or, or if you're really polyamorous maybe four or six but but it's it's it has a limited basis it's very specific generally it includes a certain level of attachment and often one of the conundrums for people who start practicing buddhism is like well, wait a second. You know, how can I be in love and you know not be attached? Because there's a, usually a lot of attachment with love, and it's actually one of the great koans or spiritual questions to begin to parse out the difference between attachment and love, because they're actually different. And that i i at least personally, I can say the best way that I've seen is to. or the most that I've learned let me put it even more bluntly is the longer I'm in relationship the more I'm able to parse out the difference short term it's harder Uh, it was harder for me more long term it's like it keeps clarifying itself the difference between love and attachment and also it's not just romantic love familial love for parents or for uh, children or for whoever it might be friends also there's usually some attachment there I know as a parent that's also a place that I've really helped me taught me a tremendous a lot about clarifying the difference between love and attachment mostly because my daughter loves the love and is not so into my being attached <laughs> you know she's very good at like no you that's you you know you think I should be this way or whatever it it might be and actually children if you let them are really good at breaking the attachment because they need to attachment's not what's needed the love is what's needed you know the parents parents get a little confused there you know so it's a good place to practice um One of the differences also when we talk about a romantic or familial love as opposed to the love of the Brahma Viharas is it's very, very personal romantic love. It's very personal familial love. The Brahma Viharas are not so personal. And this is also something that's a little different for us culturally. We don't, you know, we think mostly about personal love. The Greeks had more of a sense of an impersonal love also, but I don't hear it so much in our culture, although it's there a bit. Um, Meta is more impersonal or has more of a universal quality or universal flavor. It's why it's considered boundless or limitless love. and. And I want to be clear here also, that kind of love doesn't mean it doesn't um, appreciate the personal or value the uniqueness of each person, but it's not based on liking. Metta is not based on liking. Ajahn Sumedho once said, he said, uh, you know, you don't have to like everybody to be Buddhist. You just have to love them. Everybody got that? <laughs> you know, we think love, oh, you have to like people. You're not going to like everybody. But that doesn't mean you can't see the universal in them. And that's a different way to understand love. So, and for example, and the Dalai Lama is always a good example because the Dalai Lama goes through the world and he says this. He says, Oh, I greet each person I meet as if they're an old friend. Right? That's a beautiful example of metta. Metta as friendliness. And he talks about the Chinese government as my friend's the enemy. <laughs> right? He's not naive or Pollyanna about what's happening in the world. But actually, he doesn't lose his big perspective. So he doesn't lose the view of that from equanimity. He sees the whole picture. He sees what's wrong, but he also sees something more essential when he says, "My friends, the enemy." And. And the appreciating or enjoying the love that enjoys the uniqueness of people also it 's not just that then the universal means we 're one big blur. it means we can enjoy the differences we can enjoy the diversity the the different temperaments or the different talents or the different skills or the different Beauties of people, or the 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 different quirkiness of each person and uniqueness, but it's seen not they're not just valued for that, but for something more essential. So I was with the Dalai Lama. He met a friend of mine who's got tattoos on all the way. You know, he's got sleeves for tattoos on both arms. And he reached out, he took my friend's arms, and he looked at him, he said, Oh, how colorful. You know? <laughs> and and you could feel the friendliness and the appreciation. But it wasn't why he appreciated my friend. right? If my friend didn't have any tattoos, there would have been the same friendliness. So he could appreciate both, the uniqueness, the diversity, the specificity, I'm not going to say that tonight. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, the, and, and the universal, that's really in all of us that's being appreciated. And the universal has to do with some of what we have in common, no matter what the specifics are. The universal that we all have this wish to be happy. That we all wish to be happy that we all suffer is another universal and just if you can just see those two they will serve you tremendously in the uh, practice of metta in the nurturing of metta I know when I was a therapist sometimes people would come in in very dire straits or they'd be they'd be not people you would like uh, Immediately, sometimes. And I would always just, one of the things, and and sometimes they would be very off putting. And when I could see their off puttingness as part of their suffering, it always connected me with them. And if we can see the suffering in the other, it always connects us. And it's really part of the flavor and the boundless nature of metta. Of the Brahma Viharas is that we see the connection. There's no limit to the connection. There's no division. And so, when we formally practice Metta, uh, when we do the formal meditative practices, which I would imagine is in your thesis, some some understanding of that, we might practice Metta first for ourselves or for a benefactor. Maybe first for a benefactor who it's really easy to practice, feel the loving-kindness, to feel the friendliness towards, and then towards ourselves, and then towards maybe a good friends, and then maybe somebody who's more neutral, and then maybe somebody who's more difficult. Because we want to start um, tapping into that boundless nature, that limitless nature of metta. And it's actually quite rich when once when it starts to uh, awaken in us it's not that we make it happen but we awaken something that's already innate already part of who we are in essence and 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 the the radiance then is really it's something to feel the radiance of love the radiance of friendliness Because then you also start going to all different categories of, um, you know, all beings and all living beings and all beings in existence and all male beings and all female beings and all beings, neither male nor female. You You keep spreading out. Or you do it by, by spatially, you know, the beings in front of you or to the right of you or to the left of you or behind you. And then the beings to the north or the south or the east or the west or above and below. And you start feeling the, this reality of the radiant heart, the radiant heart and it's really it's it's different than physical reality where there's certain physical limitations like you know on a relative level this this little table is right here and it's not everywhere even though some some way we could spin it to make it be everywhere but but the hearts really not so limited as we think of it we often think oh i can't really love everybody or Care for everybody. This is a total Jack Cornfield quote that I stole from him. It's from Children's uh, Letters to God Dear God, I bet it is very hard for you to love all of everybody in the whole world. There are only four people in our family, and I can never do it. <laughs> <laughs> not so easy for us. But the range in the Brahma Viharas, in the Buddhist form of this emotion doesn't have any limit. And it's just good even to just hold that idea of the heart as unbounded or the heart as limitless or the power of the radiance of heart just to consider that of course it's actually in the Christian tradition also you know I think it was part of the great teaching of Jesus is the radiance of heart the radiance of love you know he he looked down and said when he was being crucified forgive them Lord they know not what they do he saw from the from the wisdom of heart what was most true and it didn't stop his heart from caring actually being kind and compassionate This is from Jnanaponika Tara, who has a beautiful treatise on the Brahma Viharas on the web that you can download. I think it's called The Divine Abodes, or it's either Brahma Viharas, Divine Abodes, and his name is Jnanaponika, Jnana N Y A N A P O N I K A. He says, This inclusive range, it, it embraces all beings be they noble-minded or low-minded good or evil the noble and low are embraced because love is flowing spontaneously the low and evil-minded are included because they are they are those who are lost and in need of love in many of them the seed of goodness may have died because merely because warmth was lacking for its growth because it perished from cold in a loveless world. And he actually talks about the Brahma Viharas, he's got a beautiful section there about the Brahma Viharas as what's needed to really treat our cultural and political uh, ailments. That love is what's needed. And it really points to, you know, recognizing the universal, that we all want to be happy or we all suffer or that we all have the capacity for joy the capacity for love, the capacity for peace and for wisdom that we all have, that every human being has that. And so it's not love based on an object outside of us, but it's love based on wisdom. And it reorients us. It's not, oh, uh, we, one of the problems or sufferings about romantic love is if we don't have the person there's no love we feel bad and down and it's it's actually very painful with meta we see that we are the source of the love that the love is about not what it's not about what's out there it's about our nature It's about what's here in fundamentally. What's innate in us. And so it's not driven by desire or attachment or self-need. Partly the desire and the attachment and the self-need is driven by a lack of recognition of what's already here. That we project it out on other people we think oh if I this person then then I have love and then I'll be loved and then I'll be okay And it's very I would say we all do that to some extent or another and part of the uh, um, going against the stream in Buddhism is not simply believing that not simply but being willing to look and see where's the love really when you, even when you fall in love with somebody, where is the love really? Because when you're really in love, your heart opens, you feel happy, friendly towards a lot of people often, at least at that beginning stage when you're really in that bloom of love. you know, All of a sudden, everybody looks good. You're just, because you're in touch with the love. There's a kind of opening of heart that happens. Actually, metta happens, I was thinking about this, metta often happens spontaneously often when people travel people travel and it's like all of a sudden you're in a new world and it's fresh and alive and that whole sense of self, whoever we've been taking ourselves to be is not so solid because the world's not so solid as we've been taking it to be in our home, in our hometown, in our usual habitual, routine way of living in the world. And now we're out there in the middle of somewhere, we don't even know where the hell we are really. We just know, wow. And there's like this Openness and friendliness and interest in people, and it's really you just want to meet people and connect. But as I said, metta is not driven by desire or attachment or self need. That when the, the heart or mind, the citta, awakens, it's open. It's radiant. It radiates what's there. Again, from Ajahn Sumedho, he said, he says it this way, enlightenment is practical. Enlightenment is practical. It's something each one of us can realize. We are all capable of moving into the position of being awake. And when we're awake and balanced and wise, we can love that is the maturing of the human being when there is wisdom one naturally naturally relates to others with love love is wisdom's natural radiance love is wisdom's natural radiance if you see somebody who proclaims their wisdom and they're not loving if they're not kind if they're not friendly question that wisdom If somebody tells you about their deep experience of emptiness and it's not warm, they're still cooking. They still need to cook a little more. And metta is really practical in terms of our lives. How we live our lives. It was actually given to the Buddha taught Metta because there were a group of monks and nuns. Here's the story it was an antidote to fear. And we all have fear. We have, all have fear about many different things and being in the world and, you know, doing whatever we do in the world and living our lives. And the legend is he sent off a group of practitioners to go meditate in a forest that was inhabited by tree spirits ghosts, basically. And these spirits resented the presence of the monks and nuns and tried to drive them away by appearing as ghoulish visions with awful smells and terrible shrieking noises. So, you know, just imagine yourself sitting out in, you know, the woods somewhere in the Sierras and all of a sudden you're getting these terrible smells and terrible shrieking noises and all of a sudden these ghoulish visions You might get a little anxious. And they left and they came back and and they were terrified. They ran back to the Buddha, begging him to send them to a different forest. Right? I want to go to Muir Woods instead of the Sierras, you know, they said. And he said and of course we could just think about this as the as the force of our minds, right? Right? We, we can just sit here and ghoulish visions can arise and shrieking noises and terrible images and all this stuff smells and who knows what and we just want to run away one of the things you can do when you're afraid in addition to being mindful of the fear is to start to be friendly towards it start to be friendly towards your fear because what he did he said I'm going to send you back to the same forest but I will provide you with the only protection you will need and it is said that the tree spirits and he taught them metta and he had them do metta sit there and do loving kindness practice and then it is said that the tree spirits became quite moved by the beauty of the loving energy filling the forest and they resolved to care for and serve the monks and nuns in all ways And it points to the transformative power of love, of friendliness. And it's a power in our world also. You ever notice the difference between if you're in a friendly mood and you go out that day and you act friendly towards people as opposed to when you're in a rotten mood and you don't want to relate to anybody when you go out? It has a different impact. And I'm not saying I want to be careful here because authenticity is so important to the Dharma. It doesn't mean when you have a rotten day you should go around smiling at everybody, you know, even though you feel like shit. It just doesn't work so well. But to be at least friendly towards your rotten dayness. That's the place to start. And then when you actually when the metta starts to keep um, dissolving things, which it will or the awareness and the method, it's really a combination of the two, allows things to self-liberate and to pay attention to what it's like, what it's like when you feel relief from the suffering of a rotten day. And usually there's some happiness and openness and friendliness that comes naturally. But also we've seen in the last... 50 or 100 years, the power of love, even politically. And specifically looking at Gandhi or Martin Luther King and the impact that it's had on our world. That Gandhi basically brought down the British Empire with love. And that Martin Luther King had a tremendous impact on the past 50 years in this culture Because of his uh, understanding of love and the power of love. And he says it very beautifully. He said, Love is the most durable power in the world. When I say love those who oppose you, I am not speaking of love in a sentimental or affectionate sense. It would be nonsense to urge people to love their attackers in an affectionate sense. When I refer to love in this context, I mean understanding and goodwill. Gandhi resisted evil with as much vigor and power as the violent resistor, but he resisted with love instead of hate. I have discovered that the highest good is love. This principle is at the center of the cosmos. It is the great unifying force, the great unifying force of life. He's pointing to the boundless nature of it, the great unifying force. He who loves has discovered the meaning of ultimate reality. Now, there's a lot more I could say about metta. We're almost out of time. And I may say more next week. Let's see. I wanted to do one a week for a while, but I may have to talk more because there's more detail to speak about. Partly it's important to talk about a little bit what blocks our heart a little more directly. And then also the ways to practice metta. Um, I'll just say a teeny bit right now to leave you with something, which is, the formal way is to use four simple phrases and repeat them over and over or offer them over and over again. May you be happy. May you be, peace. May you be happy. May you be safe. May you be well uh, or healthy. May you live with ease. Those are four simple classical phrases. May you be safe, happy, uh, healthy, and live with ease. And what you could do this week is experiment and just see, especially when you're in a place that's kind of neutral, you could offer that to people, like on the bus, or if you're going to the ballpark to see if Barry Bonds hits the next home run to break the record. You can do it at the ballpark. Or if you're on your bike, training for the Buddhist bike ride, you're riding by other bikers and leaving them in the dust, you can offer them some metta as you go by. Or if they're leaving you in the dust, you can offer them some metta. Or if you're swimming in the bay, or if you're in a classroom, or if you're at your work, or if you're at your home, or anywhere, it's a very interesting experiment. It's a really great thing to do on planes when you're stuck on the runway for an hour. Start offering metta to each person on the plane. And you don't have to even feel much. Just go, just try it. Just start offering your goodwill, your kindness, your friendliness and see what happens. Um, And of course, for people we love, we can offer it. For people we care about a lot. who Even who we're attached to. We can still offer metta to those people too. Okay. And so we'll end with just a little bit of metta. So please shut your eyes. Actually I'm going to just read one more quote from Sharon Salzberg. She said, cultivating the good means recovering the incandescent power of love that is present as a potential in all of us. The incandescent power of love that is present in all of us. So for the being sitting here in this room, for ourselves, for one another, Just think, may you be happy. May you be safe, protected, free from harm. Let's bring up the images of the different people here. May you be healthy or as healthy as possible. May you live with ease of well being. just breathing in and out from the heart center letting the words come from the heart center not even from the head and offering it much more broadly including any being that you can think of could be your mother or father or sister or brother or child or lover or friend or people you don't know or Barry Bonds or the Dalai Lama May you be safe, protected, free from harm. May you be happy. May you know the highest happiness. May you be well, the body and mind. May you live with ease of well-being. And then for all beings, for all beings in every direction, in every world, beings born, beings to be born, may all beings be safe. Whether it's mice or snakes or birds or porpoises or elephants, or humans, may all beings be happy. Whether they're big beings like whales or little beings like mosquitoes or cockroaches, may all beings be well. may be beings that are known or beings unknown. May all beings live with ease, with well-being. And may all beings awaken. May all beings realize their true nature, their Buddha nature, their limitless, boundless nature the nature of wisdom and compassion. May all beings be free. Thank you for listening.